Father, we don't dare open your word without asking your blessing. Please show us anew the wonders of salvation and unleash our hearts in new praise. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, we reviewed the wonders of that very first Passover and how the Israelites, who were saved from slavery and walked through a dry land in the Red Sea, just couldn't help but praise God in song. And we sang the words of those songs last night. And you sang it so good, we even did it in a round. That was fun. It was, those are electrifying words. This high Sabbath, it's a fitting time to review and trace such high points of salvation all through the Bible and see how often when God does some great salvific act, people just can't help but praise. And let's start with creation. Remember when God comes to Job and Job and his great suffering, God first describes to him creation week. And remember those words in Job 38. God asks Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. To what were its foundations fastened or who laid its cornerstone? And then God gives the mood. He says, when all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. When God works, it just brings forth praise, doesn't it? And as the universe looked and saw what God did that creation week, they couldn't help but praise. And then as we did, we reviewed last night, the great Red Sea crossing. Israel's had been slavery for 400 years. And remember, as you know the story in Exodus, how Pharaoh had cursed and defied Israel's God. Because at that time, the Egyptian Pharaohs thought they were God. And they didn't like anybody challenging that. And so they were cursing and defying Israel's God. But God came to their rescue. In fact, God had promised in the book of uh, in the book of Genesis long before this. He told Abraham that he was going to do this. Remember, God told Abraham, "Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not theirs, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they, that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions." And now that those 400 years had passed, and God came back to save his people. But first of all, he put a series of plagues on the land of Egypt. And have you noticed how one by one, each of these plagues dismantled the Egyptian gods? Because the Egyptian people at that time worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped different insects. They worshipped frogs. And they worshipped cows. And one by one, God dismantled all the power of these false gods. Even Pharaoh's counselors told Pharaoh in the midst of these plagues that they saw the finger of God in this. And, the, and it says in the text, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen. Remember too that some of the plagues at that time fell on both Israel and Egypt because the Israelites were not guilt-free but then, a God, but then God again shows his sovereignty and some of the plagues only fell on Egypt and God acknowledged his people as his own. Yet the final fearful plague, though both Israel and Egypt were undeserving, God made a provision of safety as he always does when he administers justice. And he said that anyone under the blood would be spared. I like the way God describes this in Exodus 20 to Moses. I will pass through the land of Egypt, God said, on that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now 
the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. That's where the word Passover comes from. And God did just that. And anyone who was under the blood, God would spare their, their lives. The great type of our salvation that we will be, when we are under the blood, God will spare us from final judgment. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful type? Then Israel, of course, were ready to leave. And they, were, they left Egypt, but they were shortly after chased by the world's greatest army and superpower at the time. And what happened? It's an amazing picture. You know that God comes to, 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 uh, to Israel and tells Moses because they were in a, in a deep predicament. The Red Sea was in front of them. There was a mountain on this side, and there was the wilderness, and back behind them was the world's greatest army. What are they going to do? They were scared to death. So God talked to Moses, and he tells him what to do. And Moses tells the people what God had said. And Moses said to the frightened people, Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell the children of Israel to go forward, walk into the water. But lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and it will be divided. And the children of Israel will go over on dry land in the midst of the sea. Now notice, when you take all the water out of the, out of the sea, the dry land is part of the miracle too. They weren't going to sink down in the mud, right? They were going to walk on dry land. And God says, so I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his gods and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. And then the Egyptians will, will know that I am the Lord. And then you know the story how, how God separated the waters with the east wind, and so the waters were like walls as they walked through the Red Sea. And at our vacation Bible school, they acted this out last summer, and they took some plastic sheets and put them on long uh, poles of, of uh, wood, and they stood there and kind of one on either side, and they kind of jiggled it so it looked like water walls, you know, and the kids walked through. It was a good reenactment of that wonderful deliverance. And then after they got through, the Egyptian army said, well, let's go after them. And then it says in the text that God loosened the wheels of the chariots. And the Egyptians said, I love the testimony there, the Egyptian army soldiers said to each other, the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And they tried to, to withdraw, but then the, the waters came and covered them. And God overthrew the Egyptians. And it says in the text, thus Israel saw the great work which God had done. And what did they do? They couldn't help but sing. And we enacted that last night, those wonderful words. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And notice it says in Exodus that, after they were starting to sing, Miriam joined them. Miriam, and it calls her a prophetess. Now, usually when we think of Miriam, we think of the bad things she did. But God calls her a prophetess. And, you know, she's the only one of the three, the three, the sister and the two brothers that God used to lead Israel out of slavery. Miriam is the only one that died of old age. 
Your two brothers died because of their sins. So we got to look, look more favorably on Miriam, right? But it says that Miriam the prophetess took up the timbrel and led the women in the singing of praise to God. And so apparently it was antiphonal and, and did it in a round, maybe like we did last night with Mick, those great words, and Miriam led the singing of the women. It's such a beautiful picture. But when God does something great, people can't help but just sing in praise, right? The psalmists do the same thing. You know, have you noticed how many of the psalms praise God for what he's done? And they talk about uh, God being on our side and fighting our battles for us. I like Psalm 96. Oh, sing, sing, see, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Why? For he is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the, God, but the God of heaven made the heavens. Sing unto the Lord a new song. He's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. Shout joyfully before the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. And on and on the psalmist goes because of the great things that God has done. It's a beautiful picture in the Bible. Later, you remember King Hezekiah. When he became king, there had been a string of bad kings in front of him. But when he came, his heart was tender to the Lord. And he did what was right in the Lord, in sight of the Lord. And he saw how the temple had fallen into disrepair and idols were everywhere. And so you know what he did? He called the priests and he said, sanctify yourself. We're going to change things. And he cleaned out the temple and he, and he uh, uh, said, it's in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord. And so they, they gathered together and they cleaned out the sanctuary of all the rubbish and they tore down the idols and they gathered together for a, for a worship service. And then... King Hezekiah rose early and gathered all the rulers of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And he stationed the Levites in front of the house with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David. And the Levites stood with the instruments of, of David and the priests with the trumpets, and the song of the Lord began. So all the assembly worshiped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded, and it continued as the people praised God. And Hezekiah commanded the Levites to sing praise. I love that. He commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and the psalmist. So they sang with praise and gladness and bowed their heads in worship. So the service of the house of God was finally set in order again. And Hezekiah and the people of God rejoiced that God had accomplished this. It's a beautiful picture. When God moves, we just can't help but sing. You remember King Josiah, the little eight-year-old boy who became king? Well, in his 18th year, he said in his heart to follow God fully. And so what did he do? Apparently the temple again had fallen into disrepair, and there were idols everywhere, and people had forgotten the worship of the true God. And so he said, we've got to clean this up. So while they were cleaning out the temple, they found a scroll. And they started reading this, and it was describing what would happen if people became unfaithful to God. God would withdraw his protection from them if they didn't stay faithful. And they read this, and they were frightened. So they took it to King Josiah, and they said, look what we found as we were cleaning out the temple. And King Josiah said, take it to Hilda. Apparently Hilda was the dean of the seminary at that time. And they took it to her, and they said, what does this mean? And so she read the scroll, and she said, this is exactly what it means, what it says. So they took it back to the king, and the king was worried. So he said, we've got to have a revival. This is the, we don't want this to happen. We've got to return to the Lord. So the king went to the house of the Lord, and they took the covenant, and they had a 
dedication service, a rededication service. And again, what happens? They start singing because God had restored them. And it says in the text, Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover, this was Passover time apparently, to the Lord your God, as is written in the book of the covenant. And then the historian writes, Such a Passover had never been held since the day of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held. Isn't that beautiful? We were celebrating one of the great acts of God last night too, just like Josiah did. And they celebrated God's mercy again. Let's go to the New Testament. See if we still see this pattern of God doing some great thing that just unleashes praise. Well, one I really like is when, remember when the angel came to Mary and told her that she was going to, that the Messiah, the prophecies of the Messiah were going to be fulfilled and that she was going to bear, be the mother of, of the Savior. And what does Mary do? She bursts into song. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has not re forgotten the lowly, and behold, he who is mighty is doing great things, and holy is his name. And this wonderful song. When I was studying music at Andrews University in my music history class, the teacher told us that this one song in the Bible, Mary's Magnificat, it's called, has been set to music by more composers than any other passage in the Bible. It's just a great song of praise. Here all this time Israel had been waiting for the Messiah to come. And now here's the first announcement that that prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And Mary just had to burst into song. It's a beautiful picture. Well, of course, then when Jesus was born, do you remember the great song that was sung then? Remember what it says in Luke? Now there were in the same country shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord, sh glory of the Lord shone round about them, but they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, not just to the Jews, but to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. When Jesus was born, the angels had to sing. It was such a great event. I like the way Ellen White describes this in Desire of Ages. She says that angels attended Joseph and Mary as they journeyed from their home in Nazareth to Bethlehem. The decree of imperial Rome for taxation had extended even to Galilee. Weary and homeless, they traversed the length of the entire street trying to find a place to rest. But there's no room anywhere except in a crowd, rude building where the beasts are kept. They find refuge and the redeemer of the world is born. So you get the feeling now, it's kind of dark, and it's not a very welcoming place. But then Ellen White goes on and she says, men know not, but the tidings of heaven, tidings fill heaven with rejoicing, with a deeper and more tender interest, the holy beings from the world of light are drawn to Bethlehem. The whole world is brighter for his presence. 
Above the hills of Bethlehem are gathered an innumerable throng of angels. They wait for the signal to declare the glad news to the world. And and then she describes how the shepherds had been watching their sheep that night and wondering when the Savior would come and praying for Jesus to come. And then the angel comes to them and says, fear not. And then Ellen White continues, but the angel must prepare them. The angel had quieted their fears. He told them how to find Jesus. And with tender regard for their weakness, he'd given them time to become acquainted with the heavenly light. And then the joy and glory could no longer be hidden. The whole plain was lighted up with the bright shining of the hosts of God. Earth was hushed, and heaven stooped low to listen to the song, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And then Ellen White comments, Oh, that today the human family could recognize that song. The declaration was made the note was struck, and it will, this sound will resound to the end of time. Isn't that beautiful? That great song. When Jesus was born, even the angels had to sing and praise. And then remember the description of Jesus' ascension to heaven on Easter Sunday. It says that Jesus talked with his disciples on Mount of Olives, and then he started rising, and then it says in Luke, Acts chapter 1, a cloud received him and took him to heaven. And Ellen White comments on that cloud. She said that was a cloud of angels that were sent to escort Jesus back to heaven on Resurrection Sunday. And she says that they were so excited they had to sing. And they sang the words of Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory will come in. And then the angels on this side sang antiphonally, Who is this King of glory? And this group of angels answered, He is the Lord, the King of glory. And Ellen White comments, They knew who it was, but they couldn't stop singing and identifying him over and over again in this song of praise. It's a beautiful picture of God's great acts causing praise. The wonders of salvation causing praise continue, you know, beyond the Bible. I'm thinking of the Great Reformation this morning. Do you realize that the Great Reformation was started with Martin Luther not even realizing it? 1517, he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church. He wasn't trying to start the Reformation, you know, but that was the way you build debates. If you wanted to have a debate with somebody, you put a sign on the church, let's debate these points. And he put those up there, and 95% of them were still Catholic doctrine, but he had finally started seeing something different about Jesus' gift of the gospel. A few of those mentioned that. But by 1518, so 500 years, this is a good year to remind us of this, Martin Luther finally understood salvation fully, and he was willing to die for the gift of salvation willing to die, because many martyrs had died trying to defend salvation outside of the sacraments of the Catholic Church. But when Martin Luther got it, he started writing songs. He wrote over 40 hymns. Now, we think of a mighty fortress is our God, and that's the one that we have in our hymnal, but he wrote 40 other hymns. And that's why I chose Psalm 46 for our scripture reading this morning, because that was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. And when he was thinking he was going to die, he would say that psalm. And you notice if you read it, the words of that psalm are embedded in a mighty fortress is our God. 
And so Martin Luther's heart was overflowing when he finally understood the gift of salvation. He couldn't stop writing hymns, 40 hymns. He wrote hymns on the Ten Commandments. He wrote hymns on Mary's Magnificat. He wrote hymns on all kinds of things. And unfortunately, we only know only one now. But the printing press, of course, made uh, the, his hymns to circulate. And in fact, one uh, Reformation historian writes that probably the Reformation owes its success to Martin Luther's hymns, not so much his preaching, but his hymns, because for the first time, people could see, sing about salvation. They didn't have Bibles yet. Martin Luther would end up translating the Bible into German, but they didn't have that at first. But these great songs started circulating about God's great gift of salvation and that Jesus loves sinners, and he's going to bring salvation to anyone who comes to him. And it just spread like wildfire through the music. The restoration of the gospel, the, the, the understanding of God's great gifts of salvation just unleashes praise. Other people wrote hymns about Martin Luther because they, they found the gospel through Martin Luther's hymns. And one of them was titled, uh, On the Christian and Rightly Grounded Doctrine of Dr. Martin Luther. That was the title of this hymn. And these are some of the words. I won't sing it, but listen to some of the words. Without me you can do nothing, says Christ our Lord. Our will must be moved by grace according to Luther's teaching. It cannot move itself, yet help is not far. It will soon come to meet us, as I hear from Dr. Luther. So they wrote songs about hearing the gospel from Dr. Luther. Another one wrote a hymn of 700 lines. See, we only have so many, we can only tolerate so many verses today. But this was a long hymn. And it was called the Wittenberg Nightingale. And it compared Martin Luther's teaching to the beautiful song of the nightingale that sings in the morning. And it starts this way. Wake up, the day will dawn ere long. The green wood now resounds with song. I hear the joyous nightingale whose voice rings clear over hill and dale. To you now I must here reveal who is this welcome nightingale that sings the day or hill and dale. Tis Luther, monk of Augustine, at Wittenberg he may be seen. So they were singing not only hymns about salvation, but they couldn't stop praising Martin Luther for teaching them about salvation. It's, it, it, it was just an amazing phenomenon. It happened just like what we see it happened in the Bible. And the heart of the end of the verses, he writes, Here Luther teaches that we all, the fellow heirs of Adam's fall, our outward walk may strict have been, and yet our hearts are stained with sin. And now he who feels this in his heart within has grief and torment for his sin. He mourns, is anxious, in distress. He knows his own sheer helplessness. Then takes a truly humble place, and then the day comes on apace. That means the gospel, God's own word, tells us about Christ our Lord. Took him 700 lines, but he was inspired because he was so moved by re re having the gospel restored to his soul. This glorious praise tradition will climax someday in our final exodus from this old world and our deliverance from sin's slavery. And we will join that heavenly choir already praising God. I like the way John describes it in Revelation 5. Then I looked, 
And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. This glorious Easter weekend, when East Lansing rightly celebrates God's glorious gift of salvation and how what a treasured experience it is to experience this in your church. It's a good time for us this weekend to reread at least one of the four gospel records of that, of that salvation weekend when Jesus died on the cross. And along with that, I recommend reading Ellen White's commentary of these chapters in The Desire of Ages. Read the chapter called Gethsemane. Read the chapter called Calvary. Read the chapter in Joseph's tomb, and it is finished, and end with the Lord is risen. And if we do this, surely we will be constrained again to sing aloud our praise for Jesus, the great Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world and especially ours. Amen.